Well, I want to apologize in advance for the message. Uh, don't worry, not for the content, but for the manner of delivery. In uh, God's kind providence, this is one of the few times in my life where amplification is needed uh, for my voice. God has graciously and kindly allowed me to experience some uh, laryngitis. And uh, so uh, it might sound a little rough, so I, I appreciate your patience in advance. Uh, my wife Maria is with me, my, um, my helpmate, the one who completes me, literally the wife of my youth. We've been married now for 38 years. We've got three adult daughters, Michelle, Marissa, and Amanda. Um, two of them have uh, blessed us with sons in love, uh, Brian and Donnie, three grandchildren, Jashani and Caleb and Bethany Rose. And uh, Amanda is the only one still with us at home. She loves when I do this, uh, but I am accepting applications. The Lawman104 at gmail.com. The Lawman104 at gmail.com. Um, only the godly need apply. And if you're wondering how serious I am about that, before uh, now almost 20 years of full time street evangelism ministry, there was 20 years in law enforcement. So only the godly need apply. Uh, it has been such a blessing to spend most of the week. Yeah, I'm going to get it on the drive home, I know. Um, it's been such a blessing to spend much of this week with you, to break bread with you, to fellowship with you, to proclaim the gospel with you, to enjoy some momentary light affliction in the form of persecution with you. It has truly been a joy. Uh, my dear brother, Pastor Jeff, and I complement each other very, very well. He speaks way too highly of me, and I could never speak too highly of your pastor. He is one of my dearest brothers, and I love him and Elizabeth and the five kids who have graciously adopted me and Maria as, as uh, grandparents when they already have such wonderful grandparents. And, and so it is a joy, a joy to be with all of you. I send greetings, bring greetings from Grace Fellowship Church up in Davenport. Uh, we pray every Sunday evening, uh, um, a handful of churches, one church each week, and Christ Fellowship Bible Church is one of the churches that we regularly lift up in prayer. We love you all very, very much. Uh, we love to co-labor with you in these ways, and uh, just know that your church family, your elders, all of you are being prayed for on a regular basis up in, up in Iowa. Now, the title of this afternoon's sermon is How to Gauge Success in Your Personal Evangelism Efforts. Now, today's sermon will be unlike the homiletically precise and beautifully exposited sermons you are so richly accustomed to hearing Sunday after Sunday from this pulpit. Uh, today's sermon is going to be more topical in nature. And while today's sermon will have it's three standard points. It's going to be a while before we get there. Uh, in fact, I think about two-thirds of this afternoon's message, message is introduction with a whole bunch of subpoints. So if you're taking notes, get ready. Now, the three main, <clears throat> the three main points which serve as a three-word definition of effectiveness or success in evangelism, obedience, faith, and love, 
uh, will be presented in a bullet point, almost shotgun uh, manner uh, with the reading of assorted biblical texts and brief commentary on each. And the reason for this is that I believe that once we get to these three points, it's going to take very little explanation and even less convincing uh, to bring you to an understanding of what success and or effectiveness in evangelism truly looks like. Now, if I haven't lost you already, and that wouldn't be your fault, it would be mine, uh, my hope is that this will all make sense by the time we finish our time in the Word this afternoon. And my hope is that our time in the Word will bring conviction, correction, sanctification, and edification to this portion of the Bride of Christ, which calls Christ Fellowship Bible Church home. That's the goal. So I'd ask that you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture. Now, these these two passages uh, are going to serve as foundational passages for this afternoon's message. They will be referenced throughout the message that we won't be expositing them per se, but this gives us the foundation of where we're going today. The first is Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. God's word tells us this. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these, the two commandments depend, the whole law and the prophets. And then just turn a couple pages over in your Bible to Matthew 28. Just like the passage in Matthew 22, this one I'm sure is very familiar to you. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. God's word tells us this. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You may be seated. And again, I apologize. The clearing of the throat is going to be an inevitable consequence of me talking this afternoon. So I appreciate you bearing with me. Because I am a Christian. Because I have been saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, I believe the best way for me to fulfill the two greatest commandments, which we just read, is this. The greatest way I can show my love for God is by testifying to the world who He is and what He has done in the world through Christ and in my own life. 
And the greatest way I can show my love for a person, any person, every person, is by warning people about the wrath of God to come, a wrath that may already abide upon them, and pointing them to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, and reconciliation they so desperately need. In today's message, we're going to consider what the Word of God says regarding this most important temporal endeavor, loving God and loving people through the vehicle of evangelism. More specifically, we are going to consider by what standard we ought to gauge the effectiveness of our evangelism efforts, and there is a standard. And again, the standard for gauging the effectiveness in evangelism, the standard for gauging our quote-unquote successfulness in evangelism is obedience, faith, and love. Write those three words down if you're taking notes. Obedience, faith, and love. I want to begin by sharing some quotes from great evangelists about evangelism. Some of these you're going to be familiar with. Maybe some of them you might not be. Hudson Taylor once said, The Great Commission isn't an option to be considered. It's a command to be obeyed. Albert Muller, At the end of the day, the biggest obstacle to evangelism is Christians who don't share the gospel. Oswald J. Smith We talk of a second coming. Half the world has never heard of the first. I would hazard guess it's more than that. Charles Spurgeon, we're going to hear from him a few times, the Prince of Preachers. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Again, Charles Spurgeon, every Christian, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Leonard Ravenhill. Could a mariner sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patients die? Could a fireman sit idle, let men burn and give no hand? Can you sit at ease in Zion with the world around you damned? William Booth. Not called, do you say? Not called? Not heard the call? I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him. Bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, 
and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. William Barclay, there is no joy in the world like the joy of bringing one soul to Christ. And the author is unknown on this one. Evangelism is not a professional job for a few trained men, but is instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. And one last one from Charles Spurgeon. It is a very material point in salvation to be saved from hardness of heart and carelessness about others. Do you want to go to heaven alone? I fear you will never go there. Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. What is the most natural plan to use for the salvation of others but to bear your own personal testimony? To be a Christian and to not be regularly engaged in evangelism, not the way I do it, not the way your pastor does it, not the way Brandon or or Nathan or Peter or some of the or Dorothy or some of the other folks in the church necessarily do it. But to be a Christian and not be regularly engaged in evangelism according to the personality God has given you in the context of life where he has placed you is tantamount to being a police officer who refuses to enforce the law, a carpenter who refuses to pick up a hammer, a chef who refuses to prepare a meal, an athlete who refuses to exercise, a teacher who refuses to educate, a firefighter who refuses to rescue the perishing, a doctor who refuses to treat patients, a soldier who refuses to fight a just war, an ambassador who refuses to herald the king's message. In other words, a Christian who refuses to engage in evangelism is by definition a contradiction of terms. But here in North American evangelicalism, evangelism is so often the exception instead of the rule. But it has always been the rule for every genuine follower of Jesus Christ. To profess faith in Christ while knowingly and willfully refusing to tell others about him, refusing to warn them of the wrath of God to come, and then refusing to point them to salvation by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, is such a dereliction of Christian duty, such an example of cowardice, Such an act of depraved indifference, such an expression of lovelessness, that such a one should examine himself to see if he is even in the faith. If you are unwilling to sacrifice a friendship for the soul of a friend, if you are unwilling to sacrifice comfort for the soul of a stranger, if you're unwilling to sacrifice your temporal freedom for the souls of those who want to take that freedom. If you're unwilling to sacrifice your vaunted, cherished, and maybe even sinfully idolized ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom, 
then with what confidence do you boast of your own citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? Now, who doesn't fail in this regard? I do. I fail. I have. I do. I will. And God's grace and Christ's sacrifice is perfectly sufficient to cover and wash away our occasional and even our frequent sinful evangelistic failures because it is by grace we are saved and kept through faith. We're not saved and kept through evangelism or any other work. But if you have no heart for evangelism, no heart for the perishing, no heart for those bound for hell, then you may not be saved. And if this is you, repent and believe the gospel while God has given you time. Now, before we look at a biblical definition of effectiveness and or success in evangelism, I want to take some time to discuss why and how many, if not most Christians, fail in evangelism. And to do that, we've got to consider the most common unbiblical definition of effectiveness and success in evangelism and the bad theology behind it. The unbiblical definition of success, the unbiblical definition of effectiveness in evangelism focuses on tangible results. How many decisions for Christ or how many people accepted Jesus as their savior or how many people come to church? I posted a few videos uh, to YouTube from some of our efforts this week, particularly out in front of uh, the Hopeless Clinic over there in Granite City. And the comments are coming in and one person says, is this even effective? This, is this even effective? Well, I answered him how I'm going to answer these questions now. You see, result-driven models of evangelism inevitably result in a watered-down gospel and strange fire like the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement, and the seeker-sensitive and seeker-driven movements. Result-driven models of evangelism often have as their foundation an unbiblical theological construct known as Arminianism. This unbiblical notion that states, in part, that man cooperates with God in his salvation. That's not true. It's known as synergism. That's the $10 word for that idea. And that's where the unbiblical concepts like accepting Jesus and asking Jesus into your heart and the sinner's prayer, none of which find their footing in scripture. That's where these unbiblical concepts come from. This idea that man somehow cooperates in his salvation. The Bible does not teach that people are saved by accepting Jesus. God doesn't need our acceptance. We need his. Rather, the Bible says in John 1, 12 to 13, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, 
even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Bible does not teach that people are saved by asking Jesus into their hearts. Rather, the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or in Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. And then in Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Bible does not teach that people are saved by praying a prayer. Nowhere in the word of God will you find anyone led in a prayer that somehow saves them. Ever. Instead, we read in the word of God in Romans 10, 9 to 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then in the second part of Acts 16, 31, we read, believe in the Lord Jesus. Now the scene here is, is, is the uh, Philippian jailer dropping to his knees and asking, what must I do to be saved? And Paul didn't respond by saying, well, you know, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart that only Jesus can fill. And, and if you pray this prayer and repeat after me, well, then you'll be saved. No, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Result-driven models of evangelism produce as an inevitable consequence an unspoken and maybe unrealized mindset that says the gospel isn't enough. The gospel isn't the power of God for salvation. The gospel needs my help. Music that is man-centered instead of God-centered. Worship services designed to cater to the lost instead of sanctifying the saved. Outreach efforts that present the gospel as some kind of consolation prize during the church parking lot carnival. Friendship evangelism that is neither true friendship nor evangelistic. Gospelless service projects that feed, water, clothe, and house people while tragically only succeeding in making people feel more comfortable on their way to hell. All of it, all of it is an expression of the belief that Jesus isn't enough. The gospel isn't enough. Salvation from the wrath to come by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, just isn't enough. God needs our help. No, he doesn't. The gospel doesn't need to be excused. It's supposed to be proclaimed. Why? Romans 1.16 For we are not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Not only does unbiblical theology and a minimization of the gospel's power breed ineffective and unsuccessful evangelism, but so do wrong motives in evangelism, even when we might be doing it the right way. We all know that God can talk through a donkey, right? We also know that a true gospel preached under false pretenses can be used by God to usher his elect into the kingdom. Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 18 to 20, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. However, while God is perfectly effective in calling the elect to himself and will at times use false converts, as he did in my own life, and wrongly motivate Christians to proclaim his gospel, or wrongly motivated, rather, Christians to proclaim his gospel. For the Christian with the wrong motives, your evangelism isn't as effective as you may think. There are street preachers and street screechers running all over the planet, nomads who have no attachment to a local church, who think they are very effective because they're preaching a biblical gospel. If you are engaged in evangelism with wrong motives, then you run the risk of bringing a reproach upon Christ if and when others discover your wrong motives. And you will have fewer crowns to lay at the master's feet as much of your work may in the end burn up with hay and stubble. I've been on the streets full time for some 19 years now. And I could testify to you that I know some of my work over those two decades is going to burn up with the hay and the stubble. Oh, it's not to say that the gospel proclaimed wasn't used by God in each and every instance and as that gospel was proclaimed. Whether to be an aroma of death unto death to those who were perishing or an aroma of life unto life to those who were being saved. But I'm not going to have crowns to lay at the master's feet for all of my evangelism efforts. Because I did it with wrong motives sometimes. I did it for the wrong reasons sometimes. Christ will still be glorified. God will still be exalted. The gospel will do exactly what God intended the gospel to do. But I won't have the crowns to lay at the master's feet in all of my evangelistic endeavors. Because I was out there for the wrong reasons. Again, our focus this afternoon is having a biblical standard for gauging our effectiveness in evangelism, a standard that can withstand the scrutiny of naysayers inside and outside the church, and a standard that can provide us with encouragement and spirit-led motivation whenever we begin to ask the question of ourselves, is the evangelism I'm doing really effective? Is there really any success to the evangelism I'm engaged in. Now the standard we will consider, what I believe to be the biblical standard, 
has two sides to its coin. Yes, it's a standard that can both encourage and motivate us in our evangelism efforts. However, it is likewise a standard that can correct and rebuke us when we stray toward unbiblical ineffectiveness in evangelism. So what might some of these wrong motives look like? Ask yourself, particularly if you are actively engaged in public or street evangelism, as many of you here are. Ask yourselves the following questions. First, are you motivated by a love for evangelism instead of a love for people? Are you motivated by a love for evangelism instead of a love for people? As I look back on my own 19 years of full-time public evangelistic ministry, I know there were times when I finished open-air preaching, for instance, and quickly packed up and headed home. Now, sometimes there were real-time constraints and or other obligations that required a hasty retreat from the field. But there were certainly other times when I rushed off for no other reason than I was done preaching. I did what I came to do, and I'm done. I didn't take the time to wait and see if anyone wanted to talk about what they heard. And I didn't take the time to seek out people to talk to them. People I watched listening to the preaching. People I knew were listening to the preaching. And I think those times of unwarranted quick exits from streets, from the streets revealed in me a greater love for the activity of evangelism than the biblically intended goal of evangelism, and that is the saving of souls. I enjoyed the act of evangelism more than I loved the people I was trying to reach with the gospel. How about this? Are you motivated by what evangelism can do for you in a temporal sense? There were likewise times when my public ministry was motivated by a desire to build up the ministry. After all, it was my livelihood. There were times when I went to the places I went, preached the messages I preached, partnered with the people I partnered, had the conversations I had, shot the video footage I shot to build my ministry. There were times when I was focused on raising financial support, building my tiny little brand, and furthering my reputation with the hope of being invited into pulpits and on podcasts and maybe even onto conference platforms. See, that kind of work burns up with the hay and the stubble. How about this? Are you engaged in evangelism, whether public or personal, public or private, because you have to or because you get to? Are you engaged in evangelism because you have to or because you get to? There is a difference. Are you motivated by the joy of telling people about Jesus? Are you motivated because evangelism, or are you motivated because evangelism is little more than a spiritual box you know you are supposed to check? Is evangelism an expression of worship or an exasperating form of work for you? Is evangelism work you do heartily as unto the Lord? Or is it nothing more than the work you do begrudgingly to stay out of spiritual trouble? 
As many of us have been out on the streets together this last week, we should ask ourselves why we were out there. Did we have the sense that we got to go? That we were allowed to go? That we were blessed to go? That we were privileged to go? Or did we have the sense that we had to go? Were you out there this week because some fat old furry guy from Davenport, Iowa was out there with you? Your work's gonna burn up if that at all was your motivation. And even after learning these things and being confronted with these things and repenting of these things in my own life, I have to continually watch out for all of these things in my own life. Tony, when are you going to preach? Well, I got to think about that. Because am I going to preach for the glory of God and for those people in front of me? Or am I going to preach to entertain you? I have to consider that every time I preach. Did we take to the streets with the recognition and the motivation that while we understood we were obeying Christ's command to fulfill the Great Commission, was our obedience filled with the joy that came with that palpable sense of privilege to be allowed to do that which Christ has commanded us to do? Was it truly a joy to obey Christ outside the Cardinals game or in front of the abortuary or on the college campuses or at the corner of walk and don't walk? How close were we this week, individually and collectively, to reaching the biblical definition of success, the biblical definition of effectiveness in our evangelism, the biblical definition which are answering these three questions. Were we obedient? Were we faithful? Were we loving? So let's now, I think now we're ready to look at these three elements, these three tests of effectiveness and or success in evangelism, whether it be your personal evangelism or whether it be in that public proclamation of the gospel. First, is our evangelism, regardless of the context, public or personal, effective and successful because we are obedient to make the effort to make disciples as we are going. And as we answer that question, we should ask ourselves, is or was my obedience genuine or feigned? Was it pretend? Psalm 66.3 Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. Psalm 81, 15. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him. And their time of punishment would be forever. If our obedience is feigned or pretend, then of course we must repent. And having settled the matter, we should recognize that our obedience in evangelism comes in part from the reality that we are slaves to righteousness, slaves of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, willing, thankful slaves of our Master. Romans 6.16, do you not know 
that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And as slaves of Christ, we understand that our obedience and evangelism isn't special. It isn't noteworthy. It isn't praiseworthy. We are simply doing that which our master has commanded us to do. Huh. Man, in street preaching circles, we love the pat on the back. Huh. We love the accolades from our fellow preachers. We love the likes on our posts. Jesus said this in Luke 17, 7 to 10. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Obedience in evangelism means we recognize that we are not special. That we are not doing anything special in and of ourselves. That we are not worthy of a pat on the back from our fellow man or our Lord. Because we're doing nothing more than what we ought to do as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our obedience in evangelism is an expression of love about which we will look more closely and will more closely consider here in a few minutes. There can be no true love for Jesus without a desire to obey his commands. Without a desire to obey all of his commands, of which evangelism is just one. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, as I read these, for anyone who might be confused, this is an obedience that leads to salvation. This is obedience that is a fruit of salvation. You will never obey to the point of earning or keeping the love of God through the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. But if you are in Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit. And that fruit includes obedience and a desire to obey, not only in evangelism, but a desire to obey all of his commands. John 14, 23 to 24, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. A little later in John 15, 10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We should obey Christ as Christ obeyed the Father. 
This kind of obedience is commensurate with a real desire to follow Christ wherever he leads, to follow Christ even to where he has already gone, to deny ourselves and take up our own crosses. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Mark 8, 34, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Similarly, but with one very key word, change, in Luke 9, 23, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Obeying Christ in evangelism is a living testimony and, if need be, a dying declaration to the reality that Jesus Christ commissioned his apostles and all of us who would come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as a result of their gospel teachings. We have been commissioned to this work. Again, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, obedience to Christ is a barometer for success and effectiveness in both personal and public evangelism. Faith is another barometer. Evangelism engaged by faith and in faith and through faith is effective and successful evangelism. If you are faithful in the work, and of course all of this presumes we're preaching a biblical gospel, But if you are faithful in the work, no matter what the results look like, if you can see any at all, good, bad, or ugly, if you are faithful in the work, you are successful. You are effective. When we don't engage in evangelism because we've bought the world's and sadly much of the visible church's lies about the effectiveness of evangelism, we say with Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest and mocking and beating, I do not know the man. Have you thought of that? When you refuse to be faithful, to engage in evangelism. Have you thought of that? Have you thought about the way you're denying Christ in that? Do you read that passage about Peter and wonder, how could Peter ever do that? Not once, not twice, three times. How many times have you refused to share the gospel when you had the opportunity to do so? Once, twice, three times, Too many to count, like me. Every time I was unfaithful in that way, I was saying, I do not know the man, and I don't want you to know him either. However, we are faithful when we are so unashamed of the gospel that the thought of denying Christ by way of evangelistic inactivity or slothfulness 
that we cannot help but declare the gospel in our homes and at work and at school and in the company of lost friends and in the company of strangers on sidewalks, on campuses, in large cities, in small towns, in coffee shops, in post offices, in grocery stores. Why? Well, according to the word of God, it's because we're not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In evangelism, we faithfully refuse to buy the lie that says to be too evangelistic is to risk pushing people away from Jesus. You can't push anyone away from Jesus. You can't catch them to do it. Because by their very nature, they're running as fast as they can toward hell. You can't catch them to push them away. Don't believe that lie. We refuse to see ourselves as public or corporate nuisances. Instead, by faith, we see ourselves as Christ sees us, as Christ commissioned us as ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When we are faithful in evangelism, we are ready to speak confidently, assuredly, unashamedly, gently, and respectfully about the hope that is in us. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Yeah, but Tony, no one's asking me. So I'm off the hook, right? No one's asking me. Maybe no one is asking because you don't look or sound anything like Jesus. Maybe they have no idea that they ought to ask you. Maybe it's because you're being unfaithful when it comes to evangelism. That's not an accusation. That's just something for you to consider. Something I have to consider. The faithful Christian evangelizes knowing and believing that the God who is always working is at work in every gospel tract distributed in every evangelistic letter written, in every science, philosophy, and social studies question biblically answered, in every conversation had, in every open-air sermon preached, in every catechism to a child. The effective and successful evangelizing Christian who is not privy to the names of all the elect, to all the names written in the Lamb's book of life, believes that salvation is possible for every lost person on the receiving end of his or her gospel presentation. The effective and successful evangelizing Christian knows that all things are possible with God, including the saving of souls. He or she actually engages in evangelism, believing God is going to save somebody. Matthew 19, 24 to 26. 
Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We can go out to that abortuary, that hopeless so-called clinic. And we can stand there thinking this is impossible. This is impossible. We're not even getting yelled at from the clinic. We're getting yelled at from the ultrasound van behind us. This is impossible. No, it's not. Because with God... The saving of every woman going into that murder mill is possible. The saving of every unborn child is possible. The saving of every coward driving a woman to that place is possible. The saving of every so-called death scort in front of the place is possible. The saving of every abortionist is possible because with God it's possible. That's what we should be thinking. Not, oh, here we go again. Oh, we got to stand out here again. This is going to be miserable again. No. We should be going out there and every other place we bring the gospel with the joy of the Lord is our strength, believing by faith that with God it is possible. The faithful evangelizing Christian fears God and not man. And when fear of man raises its ugly head, the faithful evangelizing Christian fights the sin of fear by the power of the Holy Spirit. He knows that he shouldn't fear man who can only kill the body. He knows God values him more than many sparrows. He knows God has numbered both his days and the hairs on his head. And so he faithfully sacrifices of himself and if necessary, he sacrifices himself not on the altars of comfort and safety, but at the foot of the cross, knowing that persecution is good for him, that persecution is a gift from God to him, that persecution is a glorification of Christ in his life, in her life. Matthew 10, 21 to 33, a longer passage. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For nothing, there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Yes, beloved, if we are obedient in our evangelism, if we are faithful to Christ and the gospel in our evangelism, then we are both effective and successful in our evangelism. Don't ever again be discouraged by the professing Christian who walks up to you and says, this doesn't work. That's just a lie from the from Satan. Now the person standing in front of you might be a genuine believer who thinks that way because they've been poorly taught, poorly discipled, poorly shepherded. And probably because seeing you do the work faithfully racks them with so much guilt and shame and not doing anything at all, it's just easier to point a finger at you. So don't be discouraged. If you're being obedient and you're being faithful, brothers and sisters, you are biblically and God-glorifyingly effective and successful in your evangelism, no matter the results. Finally, evangelism motivated by love for God and love for people is always effective and successful. Now, as I start to try to land this plane in the next few minutes, Let me repeat something I said at the beginning. Because we are Christians, because we have been saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, I believe the best way for us to fulfill the two greatest commandments is this. The greatest way we can show our love for God is by testifying to the world who He is and what He has done in the world through Christ and in our lives. And the greatest way we can show our love for a person, any person, every person, is by warning people about the wrath of God to come, a wrath that may already abide upon them, and pointing them to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, and reconciliation they so desperately need. Again, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Furthermore, because we love the people with whom we have relationship, we must be willing to sacrifice these relationships for the sake of the souls of our loved ones and friends. We must be willing to lay down all of the benefits we may derive from the relationship with our lost friends and family members. We must be willing to sacrifice that which in many cases brings us the most joy, our relationships. Jesus said, Pastor quoted it earlier, 
John 15, 13, greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Not only must we be willing to lay down our lives for our friends, lay down our friendships for the souls of our friends, but we must also be willing to have that same kind of sacrificial love for our enemies and the enemies of Christ. Matthew 5, 43 to 48, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We are effective. We are successful in our evangelism efforts when we love our enemies, when we do good to those who hate us, those who will fire us from our jobs because of our faith in Christ. A brother in our church has recently experienced that. Or those who will arrest us because of our faith in Christ. Those who will try to inflict physical harm upon us because of our faith in Christ. And again, there is no greater way we can love our enemies than pointing them to the one they hate the most. The one they hated first. Jesus Christ the Lord. Luke 6, 26-28 Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. It is this kind of love, love for Christ, love for friends and family, love for strangers, love for enemies that produces in us a holy tenacity and a spirit-driven boldness that makes us both successful and effective in every evangelism effort. Every one of them. Every single one of them. When the early church was receiving its first taste of potentially hazardous and costly persecution, they did not petition the Lord for relief. They did not ask the Lord for relief. So much did they love Christ. So much did they love their enemies that they asked for more boldness still. Acts 4, 23 to 31 When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name 
of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. With boldness. It is this kind of sacrificial, bold love that casts out all fear. Probably the biggest deterrent to effective evangelism and successful evangelism is fear. But love, true biblical love, removes that sinful deterrent. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Dear friends, as I've said for many years, I say to you now, the only time we fail in evangelism, the only time we fail in evangelism, presuming we biblically gauge in evangelism, the only time we fail in evangelism is when we fail to evangelize. That's the only time we fail. If you are obedient to Christ and proclaim a biblical gospel, then you are successful and effective in your evangelism efforts. If you are faithful to Christ and his word, then you are successful and effective in your evangelism efforts. If you seek to fulfill the true two greatest commandments to love God and love your neighbor, then you are successful and effective in your evangelism efforts. Every single one of them, regardless of the results, regardless of the outcome. Obedience, faith, and love. That's your definition of effective evangelism. Obedience, faith, and love. With God the Father keeping us, with God the Son shepherding us, with God the Holy Spirit indwelling and leading us, and with obedience, faith, and love as our holy motivations and our foundational principles, we can only be effective and successful in our evangelism efforts. Are you effective and successful in your evangelism efforts? Well, no, Tony. Not when you put it that way. In fact, I don't engage in evangelism. You know why? It's not my gift not my gift. God never requires a special gift of the individual Christian to enable him or her to do that which he has commanded every Christian to do. God never requires a special gift of the individual Christian to enable him or her to do that which he has commanded every Christian to do. You will not find the so-called gift of evangelism anywhere in the Bible. Might there be some Christians who are better at evangelism than others? Certainly, just like there are some Christians who are more hospitable than others, more encouraging than others, more giving than others, better leaders than others. However, that there are Christians who are better at evangelism than others doesn't free a single Christian from his or her responsibility to engage in evangelism to answer the call to every Christian to fulfill the Great Commission. Tony, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't want to do it. 
I don't want to lose my friend. I don't want to lose my scholarship. I don't want to lose my job. If this is you, dear friend, then you must understand that whatever or whoever you are unwilling to give up for the sake of Christ, unwilling to forfeit, to obey his command, to tell people about him, then at that tragic moment of refusal, that thing or that person you refuse to let go is your God. You are in that moment an idolater and you need to repent. And if hearing that you bristle, maybe not because you disagree with what I'm saying, but because your immediate reaction is that what I've suggested is just too high a price to pay, then you must right now examine yourself and test yourself to see if you are even in the faith. And you must understand that if you bristle, it is not because of your love for people that you won't let go of them if necessary, to proclaim the gospel to them. It is because you do not want to deny yourself. You do not want to deny yourself the pleasure or benefit you derive from those to whom you refuse to proclaim the gospel. You don't truly love them, you love yourself. Somewhere inside of you, you believe the people in your life need you more than they need Jesus. You believe you need the people in your life more than you need Jesus. Think about that. And if this is you, my friend, repent. I know many of you. It is likewise true that for me and Maria, there are many new faces here. People who have called Christ Fellowship Bible Church home since our last visit a couple of years ago. Praise God. I praise God for new faces. I praise God that I will have more people to meet. Maria and I will have more people to meet over dinner tonight. And as fine a church as this is, like every other church in the world gathering today, there are likely wheat and tares here this afternoon. Saved and unsaved. True converts and false converts. There are people here this afternoon who are confident in their salvation, and rightly so. And maybe uh, there are those who are quite certain they are lost, and rightly so. What kind of Christian would I be in such a setting, at such an opportune time, if I did not proclaim the gospel? What would that say about my love for God? What would that say about my love for you? Well, I would be ineffective. I would be unsuccessful, wouldn't I? If you are here this afternoon and you know you are pretending to love Jesus when you know you really don't, or if you're here this afternoon and you make no bones about it, no, I don't love Jesus. I know I don't love Jesus then I call you to repent. God the Father sent His Son to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, without sin, living a life of perfection for some 33 years that none of us can manage to live for 33 seconds. Yet even though He knew no sin, 
At a time appointed by God the Father before the foundation of the world, God the Son voluntarily sacrificed his life on that Roman cross. He died a death he did not deserve to take upon himself the punishment each and every one of us, young and old, rightly deserve for our sins against God. And unlike every false God created in the imaginations of men, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the God-man, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the second person of the one and only triune God who was with the Father in creation, all things being created by Him and through Him and for Him, the sinless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world and the Lion of the tribe of Judah who will judge both the living and the dead, this one, Jesus Christ, rose from the grave. He is alive today. He will return at a time of the Father's choosing. What God commands of you this day, at this moment, is that you repent. That you turn to God from your sin. And by faith and by faith alone, you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And He will take that heart of stone that has no real love for God and therefore has no real love for people. In fact, you don't even love yourself. Because the word of God says that the one who rejects God, the one who rejects the wisdom of God, doesn't love self, doesn't love life. They love death. They love death. You must turn to Christ. Christ is your only hope. And if God causes you to be born again to a living hope, if he extends to you the gifts of repentance and faith that only God can give, then again, he will take that heart of stone and he will give you a heart of flesh. You will begin to love that which God loves, namely him. And you will begin to hate that which God hates, namely your own sin. And you will have the assurance of salvation not because you attend a good church on Sunday. And you will have the assurance of salvation not because you participate in evangelism. You will have the assurance of salvation not because you're a good person, because you're not. You're like the rest of us. You will have the assurance of salvation because of the goodness of God that would allow His perfect and priceless Son to die for a sinner like you. And you will be reconciled to God, the God you've offended your entire life by your sin. And again, you will have that assurance, that assurance of forgiveness, that hope of eternal life, because of the goodness of God that would allow His Son to die for a sinner like you. So repent and believe this gospel. Turn to Christ and live while God has given you time. And as a result of that salvation, if he gives that to you, not as a work leading to salvation, but as a fruit of that salvation, you will love God and you will love people. And you will want to, in obedience, faith, and love, proclaim the gospel you've heard today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time and your word. I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Christ Fellowship that they were edified this afternoon, not by me, but by you, by your word. They were sanctified. 
may be corrected, challenged. And I pray, Father, that they will even more boldly proclaim the gospel in obedience, faith, and love. And for anyone here who does not know Christ, I pray, Father, believing that all things are possible by you, that you would cause people to be born again today here, not for the filling of this church, not for the exaltation of a pastor, not for the joy of a preacher, but for your own glory, that you would save souls for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.